You're listening to a sermon preached at Meridian Church. For more information about Meridian Church, visit meridianchurch.com. It is our hope that this sermon is used by the Holy Spirit to minister to you the grace and peace found in Jesus Christ to the glory of God the Father. And now, here's your sermon audio. Open God's holy word to the Gospel of John. John chapter 1. Focus this morning will be on verses 35 through 51. We'll be reading verses 29 through 51. John 1, verse 29. The next day, he, being John, he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and borne witness that this is the Son of God. The next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, And they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? They said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, Where are you staying? He said to them, Come, and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying. And they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus, was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God, you are the King of Israel. Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Holy Father, I plea for every sinner here those outside of Christ that they would hear Christ proclaimed and that in hearing they would see Christ they would encounter by your Spirit 
the living Christ. They would see Him and they would believe. And believing they would have life. And I pray for your people, the saints gathered here, gathered here today, all of us. That we would see Christ in such a way that we are compelled to tell of Christ. And that as we tell of Him, you would continue to draw your sheep. They would hear your voice and they would follow you. In Christ's name I ask this, amen. John sees and he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He sees and he says, see and say, see Jesus, say Jesus. And the point of saying Jesus is so that others might see Jesus. So seeing should lead to saying, and saying should lead to seeing. Saying is for the sake of seeing. We say in hopes that ears would become eyes, and they would see Christ, so that as they hear the written word, they might see spiritually with the eyes of faith the living word. So all the evangelism that we see in this passage could be summed up by Philip's invitation then to Nathaniel. Come and see. All of our saying should be an invitation to come and see. All of our saying should be for the sake of seeing. There is this aim in all of our saying. That as we say, people are no longer looking at us. Their attention is absorbed by Christ. The hope of our saying is to bring about an encounter, not between us and them, but between them and Christ. So I have two prayers for this message. First, is that you yourself, if you never have before, will come and see. That as the Word of God is preached, you will see the Word incarnate and you will believe. And then second, my prayer for the saints is that as we see, we would go and tell. And that our telling would be this invitation to come and see the one whom we have beheld afresh. Our text opens with John once again saying, once, once again John seeing and then saying. The next day again John was standing with two of his disciples and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold the Lamb of God. Or we could put it this way. John looks and then he lauds. He praises. He looks and then he lauds. And if you see Jesus, you will praise Jesus. And if you're not praising Jesus, you're not really seeing Jesus. Might be some data transmission of facts about Jesus, but you're not really beholding Christ. Evangelism means sharing the gospel, and the gospel is good news, and it's meant to be shared as such. It's meant to be shared as a form of praise, an invitation to join you in praise of Christ. You've tried a new restaurant, and it's fantastic. You commend it by your praise of it. You say something like, you've got to try that place. Or, I'll meet you there for lunch tomorrow. Praise invites others to taste and see that the Lord is good. Psalm 34 verse 8. Evangelism is public invitational praise. 
look to Jesus, and then just call others to behold the Jesus that you're fascinated by. That's evangelism. He looked and he said, behold. When John witnessed to the Jewish delegation, verses 19 through 30, uh, 28, he told them, I am not. And then the next day, whenever you get the impression it's his normal public ministry, he tells them, verses 20, verse 30 through 34, he is. I am not, he is. Verse 7 told us that John came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. And then the Apostle John goes on shortly to write, the true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world. The world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. So, the previous two days, whenever John says, I am not, day one, he is, day two, those two days are a commentary on the light coming to his own, and his own did not receive him. The verses we're looking at this morning are a commentary on, but to those who did receive him. You must come and see. But if they are to see, the Spirit must blow. And he blows wherever he wills. And as he causes the new birth, John 3, 3, it's only then that they can see the kingdom of God. Unless they are born again, they cannot see the kingdom of God. Here, we see the Spirit blowing as Christ is proclaimed. Verse 37, two of the disciples heard him say this. And the result is, they followed Jesus. Whenever you laud Christ publicly, and the Spirit moves, this incredible thing happens. They hear what you say, and it's not about you anymore. They follow Jesus. If your saying is working properly and their hearing is working properly, there's a sense in which they're not paying attention to you anymore. This is the grand miracle and the great hope of all true Christian preaching. That you're not paying attention to me anymore. There's a sense in which I don't want your attention right now, and if I have it, I've failed. And this is the hope of all who witness to Christ. John was, verse 8, not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. And that's why his witness was, I am not, he is. In chapter 3, you'll see some of John's disciples come to him and they say, he to whom you bore witness, all are going to him. John 3.36. And John basically says, that's the point. <laughs> I am not the Christ, he says again. And he follows it up by telling them, he must increase, but I must decrease. In most of these episodes, we're going to see men leading men to Christ. But that's not where the climactic action happens in any one of these instances. It's whenever they then encounter Christ themselves. That's the point. John, or excuse me, Jesus, now seeing them, asks, verse 38, what are you seeking? Now that question must have been piercing, what are you seeking? And you may think you could have replied better. Rabbi, 
where are you staying? You think you, could have, you would have had something more profound to offer in that moment? But everyone knew, they knew, Jesus knew, everyone in that instance knew, they were not interested in his travel lodgings. The emphasis is not on where, the emphasis is on you. Where are you staying? So Jesus, whenever he says, come and you will see, is not inviting them to take a tour, but to spend time with him as their rabbi, to learn from him as a teacher, to be taught. It was around 4 p.m., the 10th hour. It was around 4, and they spend the rest of the day with him. What must the conversation have been like that evening? It was such that one of them would go to his brother the next day and say, we have found the Messiah. Verse 41. Messiah being the Hebrew or the Aramaic variant of the, the Greek Christ. We found the anointed one. We found the son of David. We found God's promised king. And we're told that Andrew first found Peter, verse 41. You get the impression then that that other disciple came and told him second. But it was Andrew who told him first. Now, who might this anonymous disciple, at this point, this anonymous follower, who might this anonymous man have been? And I think it extremely likely. Read the book of John and see how much anonymity there is. And, and I think it's extremely likely that this is John. Who would have known Andrew well, and then Peter as well, to be the second to tell him? Who might have had that kind of relationship with them? Well, we learn that not only were uh, Peter and Andrew and James and John, not only were they all fishermen, they were partners, Luke 5, 7, and 10 tells us. But it's Andrew who's rightly highlighted here. He's the first to tell Peter, and he not only tells Peter of Jesus, verse 42, he brought him. To Jesus. When you tell others of Jesus, that's the hope. Not that it's not about you interacting anymore. It's not about uh, you, you and your conversation so much as an interaction that they're having through your words that are faithful to his words and them having an interaction with Christ himself being brought near to the living Christ through your words. Now, these two sets of brothers, Peter and Andrew, James and John, Andrew is the least well-known. You have the inner circle of three, Peter, James, John. In all the list of the disciples, Andrew is always in fourth place, just outside that inner circle. We know less of Andrew than we do of Peter, but it's because of Andrew that we know Peter. We would know nothing of Peter were it not for Andrew. You might say, well, it's because of God. God could have used another. Yes, but God ordained that it be Andrew who was the means to bringing Peter into the fold. As John was to Andrew, now Andrew is to Peter. So that Peter might be to Pentecost and the gathering of thousands into the church. Saints, do not despise small testimonies for Christ. Richard Phillips writes, Peter might be called the rock. James and John might be dubbed the sons of thunder. But Andrew's notoriety is the most excellent of all. He was the one who brought people to the Savior. How can you bring a soul to Jesus? How can you do that? How can you bring it such they encounter Christ? Bring them to the Word of Christ. His written Word. Bring them to the Scriptures. Bring them specifically to John. It was written for this purpose, that they might see and believe, and believing have life. Ask them, let's read a chapter a week, a chapter 
a month, as often as we can get together. And then get together for coffee or lunch and discuss it. And as you do so, they, like Peter, might just find that as they get to know Jesus, they discover that Jesus knows them. You are Simon. You shall be called Cephas. In Matthew's Gospel, Matthew 16, this name change is unfolded much later in Jesus' ministry. It's, it's emphasized anew. And it's related to Peter's confession, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And so, at that instance, his name is tied to his confession. Here, there's none of that unpacked. It's just simply, you're Simon. You shall be called Cephas. Jesus speaks with this absolute authority, demonstrating he not only knows who Simon is, but who he will be. And the naming and the gathering of these disciples is all the more striking whenever you begin to contemplate what John might be getting at with all these next days. Have you noticed that? Verse 43, the next day. You back up, it's already been here twice. Verse 29, the next day. Verse 35, the next day. What's John suggesting by all these next days? There's a week here unpacked for us in chapter 1 leading into the beginning of chapter 2. Back up and you remember that John opened this gospel with a lot of creation language. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him and without Him was not anything made that was made. And here you have this week that falls into two sets of three days. The first three days you have John's witness. The next three you have uh, Andrew's and Jesus's and Philip's witness. It's as if all this creation language, you see Christ calling into being a new creation and naming it. He names it calls it into being with words like, follow me, verse 43. In contrast to the other episodes in our text, Jesus goes after Philip himself. Follow me. Some have criticized John's calling of the disciples as being in conflict with what we see in the synoptic gospels. The explanation is really simple. We don't have the calling of Peter or James or John or Andrew. We don't have their calling as disciples here. We have their first interaction, their first meeting of Christ unfolded for us here. But we do have Philip's calling. And Jesus speaks with absolute authority on their first encounter, follow me. The Jesus who calls has absolute authority. And he's on the hunt. He finds Philip. Now Philip the next day will say, We have found him. But it was Christ who found Philip. Verse 43. He found Philip. The lamb is a lion. And he will have his prey. He is on the hunt. And he loses none. He does not hunt To shed blood, he hunts for those for whom he shed his blood. He purchased a flock and he says, they will hear his voice. He will gather everyone, he will lose none, and he speaks with this astounding authority, calling it into being, follow me, and the disciples made. Philip was found, verse 43, as Jesus decided to go to Galilee. Why was Jesus headed to Galilee? And was it any coincidence that all these men are Galileans? Peter, Andrew, Philip are all, we're told, from Bethsaida. Now we learn that Peter and Andrew moved to Capernaum. That's where they work out of. As Jesus is known as Jesus of Nazareth, and yet Matthew 4.13 tells us he moved to Capernaum. So in the same way, 
Peter, Andrew, Philip are from Bethsaida, but Peter and Andrew live in Capernaum. But nonetheless, this is all Galilee. Nathaniel, we'll learn from the only other time he's mentioned in this gospel, John 21, 2, is from Cana, also in Galilee. And it is to Cana they are heading. 2 and verse 1, on the third day there was a wedding at Cana. So, they're heading, all these Galileans are heading back to Galilee. They've all, it's think plainly evident, been in this area because of John the Baptist. Now they're heading back. And en route to Cana, Jesus calls Philip, and now it's Philip who finds Nathanael of Cana and says to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. I think that's basically the same thing that Andrew was telling Peter. To say that he is the Messiah, the Christ, is to say he's, he, this is he of whom Moses and the prophets wrote. Nathaniel finds one word, though, incongruent. Blatantly incongruent with everything else Philip just said. Nazareth? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? And now, many scholars believe that Nathaniel's guilty of something like prejudice in this. Is it backwater Nazareth? Galilee was looked down on by their southern brothers in and around Jerusalem anyway. And so they would argue that it's as if Nathaniel is saying, Nazareth is like the Galilee of Galilee. Can anything good come out of there? But I don't think that... Philip is, or or, excuse me, I don't think Nathaniel is disparaging Nazareth as unmentionable. Rather, I think he is assessing it as unmentioned. Matthew, Micah, excuse me, Micah 5.2 says that the Christ will come out of Bethlehem, just as David did. I think he's saying the same thing we see in John 7 as we see the people wrestle with this issue. When they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So the problem is not that Nazareth is of ill repute. The problem is it's not mentioned at all. Bethlehem is. And whenever your witness meets such an objection as this, one that seems reasonable, when your witness meets an objection like this, you cannot improve upon the response of Philip. Come and see. Philip doesn't engage in any complex theological debate. He does not have some sophisticated apologetic answer for Nathaniel's doubts. He simply replies, come and see. If you are crippled in your witness for thinking you need answers to all their objections, you don't. You just need this one. Come and see. The point of your interaction in witnessing and testifying Christ is not an interaction between you and them. It's the hope that by testifying of Christ, they will have to deal with Jesus Himself. And so invite them. Come and see. I don't have the answers to all your objections. Read John for yourself. Come and see. Yes, we should, as Peter admonishes us, always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, 1 Peter 3.15. Yes, apologetics has its place. But if you don't have any other answers, you always have this one. And you need never be timid to testify of Christ. Come and see. Spurgeon once preached, A great many learned men are defending the gospel. No doubt, it is a very proper and right thing to do 
Yet I always notice that when there are most books of that kind, it is because the gospel itself is not being preached. Suppose a number of persons were to take it into their heads that they had to defend a lion, full-grown king of beasts. There he is in the cage, and here come all the soldiers of the army to fight for him. Well, I should suggest to them, if they would not object and feel that it was humbling to them, that they should kindly stand back and open the door and let the lion out. I believe that would be the best way of defending him, for he would take care of himself. And the best apology for the gospel is to let the gospel out. Never mind about defending Deuteronomy or the whole of the Pentateuch. Preach Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Come and see. Come and see. My hope is not to answer all your objections. My hope is that there will be a seeing and you will have no more objections once you simply see him. I've had my hundreds of questions and I've graciously received a few dozens of answers. But I've received them not as I come as some authority to investigate and declare my sentence upon Christ. They've come as I've approached in humility this rabbi and said, teach me. They've come not as I stood over the word, but as I've bowed underneath the word. And my Lord's answering me, my Lord's not answering me, has demonstrated His authority as much as His answering me. We are on a need-to-know basis. I don't need to know all the answers. Your friends do not need to know all the answers. We need to encounter the one with all authority. And in this, I've found, as Peter and Nathaniel did, that Jesus is not only the one to know, He's the one who knows, verse 47. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. You notice how the tables are turned. Before it was John saying, Seeing, and he said, Behold, and now Jesus is seeing, and he says, Behold. Nathanael has disparaged Jesus, and now Jesus is complimenting Nathanael. In Matthew 23, we find what must be Jesus' most scathing rebuke. No less than six times on the lips of His mouth we hear, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! And now, there's this outburst of praise. A true, truly, behold, an Israelite in whom there is no deceit, no Hypocrisy. We'll soon see an allusion to Jacob that Jesus brings forward, which in retrospect makes what Jesus says here even more striking. You remember, Jacob means heel grabber. And after Esau is cheated, he exclaims, Is he not rightly named Jacob? For he has cheated, and how did he cheat? By deception, by hypocrisy. He has cheated me these two times. He took away my birthright, and behold, now he has taken away my blessing. But God, as he does with Peter, does a work in Jacob and renames him Israel. So that F.F. Bruce puts it this way. This is, this is what Jesus is saying. Behold one who is all Israel and no Jacob. And Nathanael asks, how do you know me? Verse 48. And Jesus replies in a way that puzzles us. Nathanael's puzzled and now we're puzzled with Jesus' reply. Before Philip called you when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. And some try to find some significance in the fig tree. 
that that was a place of contemplation. Well, that's a much later kind of image that was developed probably because of this episode, not underneath it explaining it, but over trying to read something into it. Now, the explanation for what is happening here is not to be found in the fig tree. The explanation is to be found in Nathanael. Jesus knows something. And now Nathanael knows that Jesus knows. We don't know what's known. The important thing for us to know is not what is known. It's not that what Jesus knows. It's that Jesus knows. That's what we're meant to grab here. Jesus is is not only the one to know. He's one who knows. And to our curiosity, I'm sure that Jesus would reply as Aslan did to Avarice. Child, I am telling you your story, not hers. No one has told any story but their own. You're being told of the Christ here, the Christ with whom you must deal with. This is not about Nathaniel, it's about Christ. And so instead of wondering what Nathaniel was thinking under the fig tree, that's not what's being told to you. Instead of wondering what Nathaniel was thinking, we should observe what he is thinking now, after this encounter. From the doubt of, can anything good come out of Nazareth? We turn to the faith of, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. And all this because he came and saw. Zero apologetic answer as to Nazareth. No, it's just encountering Christ himself. Don't have all the answers to that. He is the Son of God. He is the King of Israel. Nathaniel didn't see all, but he did see truly, and he would grow to see more clearly. And whenever Nathaniel made this confession, you are the Son of God, you are the King of Israel, I take it that he's basically testifying to the same thing that Andrew and Philip testified of. He is the Messiah, the one of whom the prophets and Moses bore witness, he is the Son of God, the King of Israel, meaning He's the Messiah. Psalm 2 speaks of the King, the anointed, saying, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against Yahweh and against His anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs, the Lord holds them in derision. Then he, will say, then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. Yahweh said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. So the anointed king is God's son. You remember the promise made to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7? I will establish your throne. Your son will rule forever. I will be to him as father. He will be to me as my son. I think this is as much as Nathaniel intended. David was a son of God in a limited sense. The Messiah was to be a son of God. God would be his father. I think that's as much as Nathaniel intended, it's as much as John understood at this time, but it's not what John is wanting to convey to us now on the other side of all of this. He is the Son of God. He's the eternally begotten Son of God, the only begotten of the Father. Nathaniel didn't see all, but he saw truly. And what's incredible is how much he saw with as little light as he had received. His confession here is essentially the same as what we see in Peter's mouth in Matthew 16. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. You are the Son of God, the King of Israel. It's the same confession. And Peter made that confession well into his interaction with Christ. Nathaniel makes it on his first interaction with Christ. What a marvel Our God can work with just a little light. Here is this one. Nazareth, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And with a little bit of light, you are the Son of God, the King of Israel. 
Jesus draws attention to this. Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. As we study John, you'll notice that the gospel falls into two parts. And scholars will refer to that first part as the book of signs. And that's because of the language we'll see again and again, such as is present in chapter 2, verse 11. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee. The first of his signs. And then we read this. And manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. But it was, notice, his disciples who believed. Remember John's purpose statement for this gospel? John 20, 30 and 31. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. These signs are are for belief. The signs don't demand belief in the wonder that's done by them. Many saw the wonder of these signs, and they didn't believe. But the disciples saw and had unpacked for them by Christ the significance of what the signs signified, and seeing what they signified, they believed. Come and see, and seeing, believe, and believing, have life. Among the greater things that Jesus promises Nathaniel he will see is this, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man, verse 51. This is an allusion to what's commonly referred to as Jacob's ladder. Remember Jacob, whenever he left Canaan, both to escape Esau and to find a spouse, came to a place, lays down to rest, and we're told he dreamed and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth and its top reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, Yahweh stood above it and said, I am Yahweh, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. And in the morning, Jacob exclaims, how awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. And so he names it Bethel, meaning house of God. Now you have the one who John has already told us is the word incarnate, who dwelt, or more literally, tabernacled among us. He's telling us, he's telling Nathaniel, Nathaniel, I am the tabernacle. I'm the temple. I'm Jacob's ladder. I am the meeting place between heaven and earth. I am the way. I am the link. I am the house of God. He is the Son of Man. That might seem a bit anticlimactic to what's being unpacked there. You will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending. Nathaniel's just confessed, you are the Son of God, and Jesus says, Son of Man. If you listen with unbiblically trained ears, You might hear that as anticlimactic, but if you listen with Daniel 7 echoing in your mind, it sounds very different. Daniel 7, 13 through 14, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So the Son of Man is the Son of God who is the, son, who is the King 
of Israel, the Messiah, the one that Moses and the prophets wrote of, and Nathanael will see something of that glory. Just prior to that purpose statement that we saw in John 20, 30 and 31, the disciples who have seen the resurrected and glorified Christ tell Thomas, we've seen Him. And Thomas responds, unless I see His hands and the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into His side, I will never believe. But then he sees Christ. Christ came and revealed himself to doubting Thomas. He saw he saw that the temple that had been broken down had been rebuilt. He saw the one who was the meeting place of God and men. He saw that he was indeed Jacob's ladder. And Thomas replies, exclaims, My Lord and my God. Because he saw. And Jesus says to Thomas then, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And it's immediately following that that we read. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. Sinner, do you still not believe? And the invitation to you is then, come and see, these things are written so that you might believe. These things, these signs are recorded for you, not so that your belief might be compelled by the wonder of them. You can't see that. But so that the Spirit might grant you insight into the significance, what those signs signify and testify and witness to concerning Christ, that you might have a spiritual sight So the hope is that as Christ is but before you in His Word right now, that your ears would become eyes and so the invitation is come and see. Come and see. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. If you see Him, follow Him. Come and see. Spend time with Him as a rabbi. Sit at His feet. Learn of Him. Come and see. Go through the book of John yourself. Read it with humility. Come and see. Teach me. And see if you will not then wake up the next day. As Andrew did. Exclaiming. We have found the Messiah. Come and see. Come and see that He's not only the one to know. He's the one who knows you. In His light you will see not only His glory, you will behold yourself. You'll see your sin and your shame and your guilt. But you have already seen He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Come and see, He not only knows who you are, He knows who you will be. Come and see one who as you behold Him, you'll be conformed to His image. Moving the heart of stone and giving you a heart of flesh so that you love Him. Come and see, He who is the Messiah, the Christ, the King of Israel, the Son of David, the one that Moses and the prophets wrote of. Come and see. Come and see. Come honestly with all your doubt. All your objections. Come. Come and see. Deal with Christ Himself. Stop toying about and go to the book of John itself and deal with Christ yourself. Come and see. And you will find one with such authority that all your questions fall flat. 
You need zero answers because he's the answer. Come and see. You'll know that he is the son of God. Come and see. See the one who is the God of heaven, tabernacled among men, the meeting place between God and men, the meeting place between sinful man and a holy God, the one who is God incarnate. You'll see his glory, glory as of the only begotten son of the father, full of grace and truth. See him tabernacled, tinted in human flesh so that that flesh might be torn so that you might draw near to God. Come and see. Seeing, believe. Believing, have life eternal. And saints, go and tell. Go and tell as John did to his two disciples. Go and tell your friends of that friend who sticks closer than a brother. Go and tell your family, as Andrew did, Peter, tell them that they might be part of the family of God. Go and tell, as Philip did Nathaniel, tell the most unlikely to ever believe. With all their doubts and objections, tell them, come and see. Come and see Because it doesn't matter who you are. I know who Jesus is. And if you see that, nothing else matters because I know it's through the preaching of Christ that our God says, let there be light. So that blind eyes are open and they see the light of the glory of God In the face of Jesus Christ. Go and tell. And tell them. Come and see. Let's pray. Holy Father. Again we plead. Praying that blind eyes are being opened. Christ is being seen. Being seen, he's believed in. Being believed in, they would have eternal life. And this is eternal life to know you. Father, we pray again for those of us who do know you. Having communion with you afresh this morning by your word, we would be compelled to go and tell and to tell them, come and see. How stunning is your Christ. Looking may we laud, seeing may we say, and saying may they see. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon audio from Meridian Church. Please feel free to share this resource with others. We only ask that you do not alter the content in any way. Again, you can find more resources at meridianchurch.com.